morning how many Gospels there are. And you would say four, and that's wrong. There's one Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are four accounts of the Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each wrote an account of the Gospel. But there's only one Gospel, only one good news, and that's that of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often called synoptic Gospels. What that means is they tend to trace a chronological pattern of Jesus' life. They start with his birth, end with his resurrection, and, and basically follow the same flow. And many of them contain the same parables, the same stories. John, though, the Holy Spirit inspired John to write his account of the gospel just a little bit differently. John tends to focus around seven signs and seven great I am's where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. And so John's gospel, account of the gospel is just slightly different. Back in December 1994, Life magazine, here was the cover. This was the cover of their magazine. Now notice they have superimposed a question over a rendering of Jesus. The question they superimposed is who was he? That's the wrong question, friend. Because Jesus is not a was, Jesus is an is. And so the correct question, if they really wanted to ask the question, is who is he? Speaking of Jesus. Now, the article is interesting to say the least. They begin the article this way, and I quote, talking about the question, who was he? The question was posed by Jesus himself. Who do you say that I am? St. Paul, they say, attempted to answer for him all things to all men. Now, there's a couple of problems in the very first two lines of the article. One is, when Jesus said, who do men say that I am, Paul wasn't even a Christian. All right, that, that happened in, in Matthew at Caesarea Philippi when he asked the disciples, who do I say that I am? In 1 Corinthians 9, 22, when Paul says all things to all men, he's not referring to Jesus, he's referring to himself. He says, I have become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. All right, so the very beginning of the article starts with a fallacy and it, go, it gets worse. All right, um, the article, the article goes on, he, Paul, was right. To some, Jesus is the Son of God, born to a virgin nearly 2,000 years ago. To others, he's just a man who inspired, through his teachings and exemplary life, several faiths now incorporated into Christianity. The writer of the article says, we see Jesus as many different people, dutiful son, ascetic, sage, martyr, depending on your personal needs, end of quote. You need to understand the author is saying that Jesus is basically whoever you need him to be based on your needs. That's not the biblical Jesus. The article says it may help us to know what others think of him. To that end, Life interviewed eminent thinkers, including scholars, historians, theologians, clergy, and an atheist. Now, when you read the list of scholars, theologians, and even clergy members, there's not a single conservative among the contributors. I think that's how they got this article all messed up, because they, they asked people who didn't really have an understanding of the Scripture itself. One of the, one of the contributors was a professor of English at Dartmouth University by, by the name of Peter Bean, B-I-E-N, okay? Listen to what he says in the article. He says, I don't think we know who Jesus was. The Gospels, he says, were written for political purposes. 
to convert people after the fact. The gospel writers were novelists writing a story about a child who really was born, but more important, a story with a message worth hearing. I realize, he says, that, not, that much of what we know about Jesus is novelistic. End of quote. Now let me just stop here for a second. Okay, First of all, the, the Gospels were not written for a political purpose. They were written to reveal the person of Jesus Christ. That's why they were written. And secondly, he says they were written by novelists. Merriam-Webster defines a novel as, quote, an invented prose narrative. And so if they are novelists, they are writing an invented prose narrative. Friend, this is not an invented prose narrative. It is the historical account of the man, uh, the man God in the flesh named Jesus Christ. He goes on. Jesus, to succeed, he says, had to choose martyrdom. Now listen to this. This English professor says he, Jesus, had been a failure in all sorts of human enterprises. One was to convert everybody to love, turning the other cheek. He was an abysmal failure at that. He was also a failure in his more militant role, scourging the moneylenders and so forth. He changed nothing, end of quote. Friend, Jesus was anything but a failure. The whole, the whole timeline of human history has Jesus at its center point. I mean, we mark the calendar based on the, the birth, the existence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he is the focal point of human history. He changed the course of human history. One of the contributors, the late Barbara Thiering, an Australian historian who interpreted, was an interpreter of some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, she began her comments in the article by saying there was no resurrection. Now, right then, I discounted everything she had to say after that. When you deny the resurrection, you know, you just threw Christianity out the window. There, there's nothing else that she has that's relevant, nothing she has that's really worth repeating other than the fact, I just want to hear how, I want you to hear how crazy she was, Okay. Here's what she said, and I quote, after the comment about no resurrection, she said, quote, those within his own party trying to help him commit suicide gave him poison on the sponge dipped in vinegar. He was unconscious but not dead. His side was pierced, blood came out. She says a dead body does not bleed. You're telling me that somebody who gets shot and instantly gets killed because they're dead, their body's not going to bleed. Oh, not according to her. So his followers knew he was not dead. They put him in a cave. He lived until the 70s, and it was he, Jesus, acting behind Paul, who led the party out of Judaism and to Rome. He, Jesus, married Mary Magdalene, had four children. I only have one thing to say to her. She is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. All right? Neither, neither Miss Thiering or Dr. Bean have any clue who Jesus is, and that is readily apparent by what they write. They don't know who he is. And so to call them an eminent thinker or theologian or scholar is stretching the truth, to say the least. Starting a series this morning entitled The Elephant in the Room. The elephant in the room is a metaphorical idiom which means that there is an obvious problem that nobody in the room really wants to talk about. And today, the elephant in the room is in the form of a question. Is Jesus God? Is he God? Now, I, I think everybody here would, at least most people here would pretty quickly say, well, yes, he is. But here's the elephant in the room. 
Do we have one God? Do we have three gods? We have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Can we get our mind around the fact that God reveals himself in three different ways? That's the elephant in the room that nobody really wants to talk about. And so looking at Scripture this morning, I want us to get our mind around the fact of whether or not Jesus is God. Take your Bible and open them to John's account, John chapter 1. John's account of the gospel. We're going to read the first five verses because I think John is going to definitively answer the question for us, is Jesus God? When you have found it, I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead and be seated. I think, uh, I think that last verse applies to that article. The light shines in the darkness, the darkness did not comprehend it. The people that contributed to that article did not comprehend who Jesus is. Had no understanding. Three things I want to call to your attention from the text, and then we're going to look at some life application. We're going to have some implication one way or the other. If Jesus is not God, there are three very real implications for you and I today. If Jesus is God, there's two implications, and so that will be what we look at there at the end. The first thing I want you to notice from the text is Jesus is eternally God. He is eternally God. John 1.1 1, 1 begins, in the beginning. Does that sound familiar to anybody here? Seems like I read that somewhere else. Like in Genesis 1, chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right? When it, it, in Genesis 1, 1, when it says in the beginning, God created the he heavens and the earth, the word God is the word Elohim, which is one of the titles of God in the Old Testament. But what you, want, what you need to understand is it is in the plural form. So when it says, in the beginning, God, you really could translate that and be, be grammatically correct. In the beginning, God's created the heaven and the earth. And so why would, why would Moses be inspired by the Holy Spirit to write God in the plural form? The same reason in Genesis 1.26, when God made man, it says he, God made man. He said, let us make man in our image who's he talking about he's not talking about the angels he's talking about the trinity that god the father god the son god the holy spirit and so from the very beginning we see jesus jesus is eternally god Jesus' story didn't begin in Luke chapter 2 when he was born to Mary and Joseph in, in a manger or in a barn and stable and put into a manger wrapped in swathing clothes. That was not the beginning of Jesus' story. He existed from eternity past. There was never a time that Jesus was not. There will never be a time that Jesus is not. Now, a couple of you got that. I can say my own amens, but we're going to be here a whole lot longer, okay? And y'all want to go to lunch. Listen, friend, there has never been a time that Jesus was not, and there will never be a time that he is not. Jesus, in John 8, 58, said, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, 
He's not just talking about being before Abraham. Every single Jew that would have heard him say that had a very clear understanding of what Jesus was saying. He was making reference to the name of God. When, when Moses at the burning bush asked God, whom should I say sent me to? When I go to Pharaoh and say, God says, let my people go, what's your name? And he, God told Moses, you just say, I am who I am sent you. And so when he says, before Abraham was, I am, he was making a clear statement to the first century Jew that he was God in the flesh. He was saying that he is eternally God. Notice John 1.1 1, 1 doesn't say from the beginning. It says in the beginning. That means that whatever they're talking about already existed. It wasn't from the beginning. That's where it had its start. It says in the beginning. And then it says in, in the first two verses, it says the word was four times. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, why do I point out the fact the, the word was is used four times? It is in the imperfect tense all four times. What does that mean? That means it is a continuous action. It's not talking about something past. It's not talking about something present. It's not talking about something future. It's talking about something continuous. And so in the beginning, the word was, and it continues to be, and it always will be. So verse 1 could be read with this understanding. In parentheses, this is, this is my addition to help you understand, okay? And, and I, mis, I miscaptioned it. It says Genesis 1-1, but, but it's actually John 1-1. In the beginning was the Word. That is a continuous fact, past, present, future, imperfect tense. And the Word was with God. Continuously the Word was with God. And the Word was God constantly. That's how you can read John 1, verse 1, because that's in essence what John is writing. Jesus said in John 17, verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had before, which I had with you before the world was. Look at what Jesus is saying. He said, Before Genesis 1 1, I had the glory with you, Father. He is saying that he has been eternally God. Some today want us to believe that Jesus is not eternal, but the firstborn of God's creations. The Jehovah's Witnesses say that, that Jesus is a created being, that he is Michael the archangel. In fact, in John 1.1, they insert one letter that changes the entire meaning of the verse. If you get the New World Translation, which is their Bible, I wouldn't recommend it. But if you want to look it up online just to make sure I'm telling you the truth, you can find it, it reads this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That changes the entire meaning of the text. All right? Mormons want us to believe that Jesus was a created being. They tell us that he was the firstborn son of God, the first spirit child of many that the Father has. Eh, wrong answer. Jesus is eternally God, always has been, always will be, never had a beginning, never has an end. Let me tell you the second thing John points out. Jesus is equally God. Not just eternally God, but equally God. It said he was with God. Verse 2 was in the beginning with God. The word with is the preposition pros, which literally means face to face or in the company of. So Genesis 1-1 is in the plural. Elohim is in the plural. Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image. 
does God have a mercy, uh, does he have a problem with a multiple personality disorder? No. It's a clear reference to the fact that he exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the first century Jew couldn't think in those terms. They would pray the, the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. They were monotheistic compared to, to pluralism that was practiced in Egypt and by the Canaanites where they had many gods. The Jews would say they had one God. Okay, And we would agree, we have one God. He just manifests himself in three persons. But they would say, if you have God the Father and God the Son, you have two gods. And then you throw in the, the Holy Spirit, you have three gods. And see, this is, this is the elephant in the room. This is the tension that you and I face, because I don't think we can ever actually get our mind completely around the Trinity. How do we rationalize one God in three persons? See, those who say we have three gods, they argue that one plus one plus one is three. Now, their math is correct, but their theology is wrong. Because it's not one plus one plus one, it is one times one times one equals one. He reveals himself three ways. Brother Tom explained that some more. I wish I could. Many great theologians have tried to explain the Trinity completely, and I don't think we'll ever fully understand it until we see the Lord face to face, and maybe not even then. Jesus is eternally God. He's equally God. Third, he is unequivocally God. Verse 1 is one of the strongest statements about the deity of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Friend, it doesn't get any clearer than that. It is real clear when it says the Word was God. The Bible repeatedly refers to Jesus as God. Isaiah 7.14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now the name Emmanuel means God with us. Matthew 1.23 And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Another example of Jesus being referred to as God in the Old Testament, Isaiah 9.6 for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now let me just stop right there because I believe that God says what he means and means what he says. And he's making, he's making a pretty important statement through Isaiah in those words. He says a child is born, but a son is given. Why didn't he just say a son is born? Because the son was preexistent before the child was in the flesh. The son is given. The son existed long before the child was born in the flesh. So a child is born, but a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called, now this is a reference to the child, the son. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So clearly it refers to Jesus as God. Thomas, when he saw the resurrected Jesus in John 20, 20, verse 28, says he fell to his feet and he said, or fell to his face and he said, my Lord and my God. Paul, talking about the return of Christ in Titus 2.13, says, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he was God, Jesus said in John 14.9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. 
says, you want to know what the Father looks like? Look at me. This is what the Father looks like. Now, John uses the word, word. Wouldn't it have been a whole lot easier if the Holy Spirit had told him to write, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God? I mean, it would be a whole lot easier for us to understand if he had used Jesus' name rather than the phrase, the word. Why use word? I think, as I thought about it this week, I think there's really kind of a simple explanation. What is a word? A word is an expression of an invisible thought. For instance, if I say pink flamingo, that's two words, I know. But that is an expression of an invisible thought. And when I said pink flamingo, some of you saw the real thing. Some of you saw the plastic statue in somebody's yard, but you knew exactly what I was talking about when I said pink flamingo. And so when, when John uses the word word, Jesus is, a, an, ex, he is an expression, a physical expression of the invisible God. He's eternally God, equally God, unequivocally God. So what are, the, what are the life applications? What are the implications? First, if Jesus is not God, if you say, well, preacher, I still don't buy it. If Jesus is not God, then there are three things that means for you and me. Number one, it means the Bible would be false. You can't trust that book that you have in your lap or on your seat next to you or in your hand. If he is not God, then this book is fake. See, because the, the major support piece to Jesus' divinity is the Bible. There are about 400 prophecies about Messiah in the Old Testament, and Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. Think about that. What if Nostradamus, back in whenever it was he wrote, what if he said there's going to be a place called the United States and there's going to be a millionaire businessman by the name of Donald Trump from the state of New York who's going to be president of the United States one day? If he wrote that back in the 1500s or whatever, we'd say, Man, what are the chances that one guy would fulfill all of that? And yet Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies, some of them written hundreds, some of them more than a thousand years before he was physically born. And, and so if he's not God, then the Old Testament and the New Testament are phony. They're false. Here's a few of the things that the Old Testament and New Testament would be lying about if Jesus is not God. Isaiah 7, 14 says the, the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Luke chapter 2, verse 7 affirms that. Hosea 11, verse 1 says the Messiah would end up in Egypt. Matthew 2, 14 and 15 tells us that happened. Micah 5, verse 2 says Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. We read of that in, in, in Matthew 2, in Luke 2. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11 says Messiah would be resurrected from the dead. We see that in Matthew 28, verse 1 and following in, in the other Gospels. Matthew 22, I mean Psalm 22 says his hands would be pierced, his feet would be pierced, and his clothes would be gambled for. Does that sound familiar? That was written a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, and it's fulfilled in Matthew 27. Zechariah 9, verse 9 says Messiah would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The triumphal entry, Matthew 21, verse 1 and following, he did. Psalm 2-7 says Messiah would be called the Son of God numerous times in the New Testament that happened. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13 said the Messiah would be sold out for 30 pieces of silver. What did Judas get when he sold Jesus out? 30 pieces of silver according to Matthew 26, 14 and 15. Now, not just the prophecies have to be wrong. 
okay? The miracles have to be wrong as well. They have to be frauds, fraudulent. They have to be fictional. When it says that Jesus healed the man born blind, the man with leprosy, the man with a withered hand, the man who was paralyzed in Mark chapter 2, when a crisis came up and Jesus spoke the words and calmed the winds and the sea, he fed thousands with a little boy's lunch, when he raised the dead on at least three occasions, all of that has to be phony because the Bible has to be false if Jesus is not God. Now, so the Bible would be false. The second implication, if Jesus is not God, then Jesus would be a fraud. I mean, he'd be the worst of the worst. Here's a man born in an obscure village to a peasant woman, raised in another obscure village that people scorned. You remember Philip, when he heard that the Messiah was from Nazareth, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? For 30 years, he spent in a carpenter's home practicing carpentry, to which he then became an itinerant preacher. He would travel around preaching. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He, he never had any formal schooling, never bought a home, never traveled more than 200 miles from where he was born, never served in the military, never was a businessman, so he had no credentials that we would usually associate with greatness. Not long into his street preaching, public opinion turned on him. His friends fled. He was arrested. He had a mock trial. He was crucified to his death between two thieves. As he died, the, gam the, the soldiers gambled for his clothing. And only because a friend gifted it to him did he have a tomb to even be buried in. Twenty centuries have come and gone. And he is still the central figure of human history the center point he's the timeline of human history if he's not god then he's a fraud jesus often claimed and exhibited attributes that could only be god john 5 18 says therefore the jews sought to kill him all the more because he not only broke the sabbath but also said that he was god making himself equal with god mark 14 when he's being grilled by the high priest after he's been arrested Mark writes, again, the high priest asked him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son reveals to him. John ten thirty. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Now, friend, if Jesus is not the Son of God, he is a fraud. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called Mere Christianity. If you've never read it, I'd encourage you to get it. You can probably get it on Kindle for a couple bucks, if that, all right? He wasn't the first one to, to put this forth, to postulate this idea, but, but he's the one who made it popular, okay? In the book, he says that Jesus has to be one of three things. He is either a liar, or he is a lunatic, or he is Lord, those are the only three options. I want to read to you a few sentences of the book. Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a good moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who thought he was a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. 
You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or else something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come, Lewis writes, with that patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lewis says, now it seems obvious to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. If Jesus is not God, the Bible's false. Jesus is a fraud. And the third thing, your sin is not forgiven. If Jesus is not God, you could not be forgiven. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means I've sinned, you've sinned, every one of us are sinners. Romans 6, 23 says the wages, the payment for that sin is death. Not only are we going to physically die, but our sin spiritually causes us to be spiritually dead, separated from God. Now, if, if, uh, if that's all there is, man, that's, a, that's bad news. Because we've all sinned, and as a result, we're all going to spiritually be dead and end up in a place called hell. But that's not all that the Scripture says. I, I hope you... Um, well, Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's what? No forgiveness of sins, right? And, and so if Jesus is not God, then his shedding of blood on the cross was meaningless, and you can't be forgiven by that. Why the shedding of blood? This is God's idea, not man's. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, right? How did God cover their nakedness? It says, the Scripture says they knew they were naked and they were afraid. How did God cover their nakedness? With animal skins, right? How do you get an animal skin? You've got to kill the animal first, right? You take the skin off, and that's... So with a blood sacrifice, God covered their sinfulness. When they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and they have Cain and Abel, and both of them come to God with an offering. Why did God accept Abel's and not accept Cain's? Because Abel came the right way with a blood offering. Cain tried to come with a a works offering, gave him the fruit of his hands, the labor of his hands with fruits and vegetables. God says, that's not the way you come to me. And so with Cain and Abel, it was one animal for one person. Then you get into Egypt, right? They've been been held hostage as, as slaves for 400 years. God's going to set them free. And Pharaoh, the last plague was was when God would pass over and kill the firstborn of every house. He told them, he said, take the blood of a lamb and put it on the doorpost of your home as a sign that one of God's family lives inside that home and I will pass over that house. And so in Egypt, it was one lamb for one family. Then you get to the tabernacle and then to the temple when they build the temple. And it was one lamb for one nation because on the day of atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice for the sins of all of the nation. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and he approaches John who's baptizing in the river Jordan. And John sees him coming and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was the final blood sacrifice. But if he's not God, then you and I can't be forgiven. So if you say Jesus is not God, it has some very real implications and none of them are good. Let's talk about if Jesus is God. All right? If Jesus is God, two things. One, 
You must receive him by faith. If you still have your Bible open, look at verse 12. John chapter 1, verse 12. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God, to those who believe on his name. Now, just in case we don't really understand yet who the he and the word is, look at verse 14. John makes it clear for us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is that? That's Jesus. John says the word took on human flesh, and who's the only begotten of the Father? That's that's the Son, the Lord Jesus. So this is obviously all about him here. And and verse 12 says we have to receive him as a gift. John 3.36, Jesus said, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you are saved through faith. If Jesus is God, you must receive him by faith. Second implication, and I'm done. If Jesus is God, then God has to be your father. God has to be your father. How many of you watched the wedding of Meghan Markle and Prince Harry? You got up early and you decided to watch the wedding. There's a few of you. Only a, only a few in the first service claim that as well, but they tell us it was the most watched event in human history. Meghan Markle marries Prince Harry. She's no, now, she's no longer now called Meghan Markle. She has a title because she married into royalty. Her title now is the Royal Highness Duchess of Sussex. That's her title. Now, if her and Harry have kids, the kids will automatically be royal. They're, they're, not, they're, they're not becoming royal because like, like Megan did, they married into it. They are born into it. So they're royal from the start. Not so in the Christian faith. No one is born a Christian. Just because your parents are Christian does not make you a Christian. Just because you're raised in a Christian home does not make you a Christian. God has no grandchildren. You are either a child of God or you are lost. One or the other. Now, some well-meaning parents baptize their infants, and they have good intentions, and it's the teaching of their church. In their minds, when they baptize their infant, they are passing on their faith to their children. Those children are being baptized into the Christian faith, they believe. Listen to me, friend. Baptizing an infant does not make that infant a Christian. Why? Because you cannot inherit salvation. Every single person the Scripture teaches has to come to faith themselves. Now, we as Baptists believe it's important to dedicate your children to the Lord twice a year. At Thanksgiving and Mother's Day, we have dedication services where parents bring their children and commit them to the Lord. But that doesn't mean we are making them Christians. That just means we are praying for them to become Christians when they recognize their own sinfulness, realize they can't save themselves, that Jesus is their only hope, and they repent of their sin and follow Christ. You can be a you can believe without receiving Jesus. You can believe the facts and still not have faith. So what does it mean when we talk about welcoming Jesus into your heart? Receiving Jesus into your heart. Let me explain it to you through a story. Some of you may have heard the story about Wallace Perling. 
Wallace was a nine-year-old boy that was a little bit bigger than everybody else in his grade because he was a little bit slow and had been held back a couple of times. And so when it came time for the annual Christmas pageant, the teacher trying to figure out what would be a good role for Wallace, where he wouldn't have to do a whole lot, but he could participate, decided to make Wallace Perling the innkeeper. Thought, you know, he's going to be a lot bigger and he's got a deeper voice already. And so he can, he can, all he had was one line. We are full, be gone. That's all he had to do. So he was ready for the big night. The time of the Christmas pageant came and Wallace stood behind the cardboard cutout for the door that said in, waiting for his moment under the lights. It came finally. Little Joseph approaches the door, knocks on the door. Wallace flings open the door and there he stands towering over little Joseph. Joseph says, we seek lodging. Wallace, as he was taught, said, we are full, be gone. Joseph said, please, sir, my wife is with child and needs a place to rest. Wallace said, sorry, we're full, be gone. Well, Joseph slowly turns and he takes Mary by the elbow and they're slowly making their way away from the inn. Wallace is supposed to close the door, but he doesn't. He stands in the doorway watching Joseph and Mary walk away. And, and this is where the pageant became unlike any other Christmas pageant you've ever seen. Wallace went off script. He wasn't supposed to have any more lines. But as he watched Joseph and Mary walk away, he says, Joseph, wait. You and Mary can have my room. Some say he ruined the Christmas pageant. Personally, I think Wallace Perling made the Christmas pageant because he demonstrated for us what it means to give Jesus your heart. When you give Jesus your heart, you say, Jesus, wait. You can, you can have my heart. Come into me and live here. That's what it means to receive him and to, to as many as received him. To him, he gave the right to be called the sons of God to those who believe on his name. Father, I pray that, uh, first, Lord, I thank you for the words of John 1, which clearly teach us that Jesus is God in the flesh. God, I pray that we have resolved that. Maybe not completely understanding all that it means, but at least Hopefully we have resolved the fact that we accept the fact that Jesus is indeed God. Lord, during this time of invitation, I pray that you would find us obedient, that we would respond to the, the calling of your Holy Spirit, the drawing of your Holy Spirit. Lord, be pleased through our obedience now in Jesus' name. Amen.